We're studying the book of Matthew, as you know, and in the book of Matthew, we're learning early on in Matthew how to live as kingdom of God believers in an evil world. Uh, The kingdom is coming. We have a king that is coming. You know, the theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. We say it week after week after week. And we're in training for that kingdom. And that kingdom is very different than life here. And our response to our world is very different than we responded before we were saved. And we're learning this in the book of Matthew, how to live as kingdom of God believers in an evil world. How do we impact our world? This week, we're going to be talking about betrayal and desertion being part of the plan. Now, remember, Gethsemane has just occurred. Jesus had prayed the agonizing prayer. If there's any other way, Father, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. And we learned the agony of Gethsemane really was wrapped up in what Jesus was going to experience on the cross. It wasn't the beating. It wasn't the embarrassment. It wasn't the brutality of the cross. That was awful, indescribably awful. But the worst thing for Jesus was when all the sins of the world, our sins were placed upon him and darkness came over the face of the earth. That was the agony of Gethsemane. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We learned that last time. And at the end of that, he, they, he prayed three times, each time the disciples were sleeping. And then Jesus comes back the third time. He wakes them up and then he points and says, behold, my betrayer is coming. And this week we'll talk about that betrayer and desertion. So if you would stand as we read the word of God together, we're in Matthew 26, 47 through 56. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas One of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray for my father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitude, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. This is the word of God. Our Father, we thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, I ask you to teach us today things that you want us to know. We're not just hearing this uh, for no reason at all. We're hearing it, allowing it to seep into us, and allowing it to change our lives. We don't want to be just hearers of the word but doers of the word. And I pray right now as God speaks to you during this talk that you do whatever he's talking to you about, whatever he says for you to do. Apply it to your life, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In Gethsemane, we learned something. We learned that in our time of agony, and I'm hoping that you go to your place and pray, and experience the presence of God. That is what we learn in Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, I go from struggle and agony to resolution. Okay, Lord, your will be done. 
In Gethsemane, I come to the zenith of I will trust in the Lord until I die. I don't understand this. This is not enjoyable to me. This is miserable. But in Gethsemane, I realize God is in control. I'm not. I'm going to place my trust in him. In Gethsemane, we realize the presence of God is worth everything when you go through the waters, the floods of life, and the fires of life. And I have a Isaiah 43 verses 2 and 3 slide that will come up on the screen. And it says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Now notice that God is with you. I don't care where you are, what you're going through. I don't care if you're in some prison someplace. I don't care if you're in some cave and it's caved in on you. I don't care if you're abjectly alone. God is with you. I will be with you when you pass through the rivers. They will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Personalize that. He's your Savior. God never says we won't go through the floods and the waters. He never says we're not going to go through the fires. As a matter of fact, we're kind of guaranteed those things. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's going to be misery while we're living in this world, but we have a God that goes through everything with us. He will never leave you nor forsake us. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Please remember that. Never forget it in the flood, in the disasters of life. And this, this lady in this picture is standing in a calm of water. That water in her life is really turbulent, just waving all over the place. But with God, somehow, some way, he enters into your stuff. And he brings the peace of God that passes, passes all understanding, floods over you. And what misery you're going through, you can still have peace in the process. That is the guarantee that our Lord gives us. So, we're talking about betrayal and desertion. The betrayal is in verse 47 through 50. And while he was still speaking, again, he's telling his disciples, get up, it's time. Behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi. Not greetings, master. Not greetings, Lord. Greetings, teacher. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? But then they came and laid hands and they took him. An amazing thing. Judas the betrayer. A kiss is an act of friendship. More on that in just a few minutes. And he's acting like he's a friend of Jesus. We must realize that betrayal was part of the plan. It was part of God's plan to fulfill prophecy. Remember in Gethsemane, Jesus was speaking. There's my betrayer. He's coming. Mark adds that, he came, that they came with swords and clubs. John says there was an attachment of troops that 600 Roman soldiers with the chief priest, with the Pharisees, with this group, there could have been 600 to 1,000 men, armed Roman soldiers that were there trying to take Jesus. This was not going to be a time of chit-chat with Jesus. They were coming to arrest him, lay hold of hands on him viciously, and drag him off. Now, you're going to see some astounding things happen in a few minutes that Matthew does not include in his 
narrative. The kiss on the cheek. Remember, kissing is common in the, in the Mideast. I mean, they would kiss the feet. They would kiss the hem of a garment. They would kiss the, the hand. But a kiss on the cheek was, was reserved for the most precious people in your life. And this really was the height of Judas' hypocrisy. Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. Friend, why have you come? Friend, why have you come? Comrade, clansman, implies closeness. Why have you come? This fulfilled prophecy, folks. Psalm 41.9, written a thousand years before this event occurred. A thousand years. Even my close friend whom I trusted he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus quoted this in John 13, 18, applying it to himself. An amazing thing. Jesus was betrayed by a friend just like the prophets said. It happened just like they said. Now, who does Jesus call friends? I mean, everybody wants to be a friend of Jesus. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, I want to be a friend of Jesus. Everybody wants to be a friend of Jesus. But there's a requirement to be a friend of Jesus. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. You know what else is a friend of Jesus indicates you're really a friend of Jesus? Jesus said this in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. They will not follow the whims of another shepherd trying to steal their joy, steal their hearts, steal their soul. They will follow me. They hear my voice, they know it, and they follow the true shepherd. That's an indication that you're really a friend of Jesus. Now, I want you to think about Judas. He was an apostle called by God for this time frame. He was with Jesus for three plus years. He, when they went out and performed miracles two by two, casting out demons, healing the sick and all that stuff, remember? He was included in that group. Nobody came back and said, well, Judas couldn't do this. He had the power of Christ and he did miraculous things. He saw this power. Judas saw and lived with Jesus for three and a half years, saw the love of Jesus and saw the miracles of Jesus, things that only Messiah could do. Judas claimed to be a follower, but he was not a true follower. Now look at, if you're not a true follower of Jesus, you say you're a believer. Folks, you are very well could be a make-believer, pretender. I think I'm in, but I'm not. Folks, you're in if you obey Jesus. You're in if you follow Jesus. Then you can know that you're in. Many in the church today are like Judas. They profess Christ. Say, I love you, Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. And quickly abandon Jesus. Why do people abandon Jesus? Well, many times it's because Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. This happened in my family. I can't believe that I can't go on believing this because cancer has come, a lost job has come, some disaster has come, and I'm just going to drop off this thing. Well, I'll tell you, sometimes it gets difficult to know who's saved and not saved. Parable of the soils helps tell us who's really in the family of God. In the end, folks, it's all about fruit. I just want to briefly go over this to remind you, this is the parable of the soils. There is a sower. He has the seed. The seed is the word of God. The sower is God. And he throws the seed out. Now, where does the seed land? Some of it lands by the wayside on the hard soil. Satan steals the word, and that person never receives the word. That's the soil by the wayside. The second soil was, a, was, a, was the 
soil of stony. It was stony, shallow, but it was fertile. That person believed very quickly and was, yay, Jesus, wonderful Jesus. I got saved in camp. How many kids got saved in camp? And then never came back again. How many people at some, some, some massive Christian event, like promise keepers, make all these promises to Jesus, never follow through, never follow through. They, had, they looked genuine for a time. And then when perseverance and persecution came, tribulation came, they fell away. They looked genuine, but they were not genuine. Their soil was not proper. Then there's the thorny soil. This is the cares of the world, the deceitful of riches. Choke out the word. You become consumed. But there was a little fruit. There was a little fruit that was produced, and then it became unfruitful. This is the soil that's most difficult to tell if somebody's saved or not. It is the most difficult. I mean, they could just be carnal Christians, or they may not. They may not be genuine. You have no safety in that thorny soil. But you know the good soil produces 160 and 30-fold. Now remember, it's all about the fruit. The fruit. Now what in the world is fruit? First of all, realize you don't produce fruit. Fruit is produced in you as you yield to Christ, as you dwell in Christ, as you make your home in Christ, as you walk in concert with the Holy Spirit. It's not something you do. It's a result of you dwelling in God. So that's the first thing to remember. So what is fruit? It's character change, life change, growth change. That's fruit. That's fruit. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and it starts with love. I mean, you, you actually start loving people. You may start loving your husband or loving your wife or loving the team or loving... Just, you just start to have more of, a, of an affection for people, caring for people. And from that comes joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let me pause on self-control. I want to ask you a question. And you be honest with me. How much self-control did you have Thursday? <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a lot for each one of us, was there? No, no. There might be somebody in here that did that, but I would say they're the gross minority. Self-control. And then he goes on to say, against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus, let this resonate within you, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you're walking with Christ, you have the power within you, the Holy Spirit power within you, to say no to your flesh and yes to your spirit. That exists within you. You have to choose which road you're going to go. But you have something the world doesn't have. You have the Holy Spirit. Many say they are Christians and they live contrary to God. They do their Christian thing. I think I'll go to church or I might go to Bible study or I might do something like that. They'll do their Christian, their religion. It's a religious thing. I'm religious. I'm spiritual. I'm going to do my religious thing. They say, I believe in Jesus. And so many then do this, live with their girlfriend or boyfriend, and then they will think and rationalize, hey, everyone's doing it. If everyone's doing it, why, why I think it's okay. I think it's okay. I believe in Jesus, but I'm still planning on cheating. Cheating on my taxes, cheating on the test, cheating and doing something untoward that would be a sin against God. I'm still planning on doing it, but I believe in Jesus. But I have every intent of following through with this thing. 
rationalizing my pet sin because everyone's doing it. Folks, that does not let you off the hook. I mean, if you're walking in step with this world because everyone's doing it, you are out of step with God. It is just that simple. When a person becomes a Christian, there is an expectation of that person to do what? Obey Jesus. <laughs> Obey Jesus. We cannot walk contrary to the world. Don't do what everyone else is doing. Let me say that again. Do not do what everyone else is doing. I don't care how many polls they take. Do this because everyone's doing it. No. We follow the precepts of this word, not the direction of this world. And remember this statement. We've used it before. It is doubtful that the majority are ever correct. Now, why is that a true statement? Why is that a true statement? Because the world is depraved. The ones that are telling you to just jump in and join in because everyone's doing it are utterly, completely depraved. Now, look, we're depraved too. But we have the Spirit of God in us that helps us with our depravity to say, no, this is not the direction God wants me to go. I do not have to go in this direction. And I'm not going to go in that direction. Professing Christ and living in continual, habitual, wanton sin makes that person, folks, a deceiver and a betrayer. This is walking in concert with, the, with Satan, the world, and your flesh. They came to lay hands on Jesus. They came to take Jesus by violence. I want to show you something that the synoptic gospels do not pre represent. Turn to John chapter 18, verse 4 through 9. John chapter 18, verse 4 through 9. And you can read with me or catch up with me as you get there. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words in Gethsemane, he went out with his, his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden when he and the, where he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. This is John's narrative on Gethsemane. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus had a place. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, 600 men and officers and the, from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. Now watch what Jesus says. He goes forward. He goes towards this thousand or so mob of people with bad intent goes towards them and he says whom are you seeking and they answered him Jesus of Nazareth now hold on to your hat Jesus said to them I am he now I believe at this point Jesus is speaking in his God voice I am the ego am I I am the God who created you I am the God that gives you life, breath, and all things. And something happens to these guys. And Judas, who betrayed him, stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. A thousand of them, can you imagine, to the ground. Who's in charge? We know who's in charge. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Whom are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. Now they didn't say this casually. As they're laying on their backs, their pride is gone. Fear has entered into them. And I bet they're shaking in their boots saying, Jesus of, of Nazareth. Jesus, of, they weren't arrogant at this time. 
And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, emboldened, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? John's narrative adds a whole lot. No one just came and grabbed up Jesus. He let them, in the next verse it says, then they bound him. He let them bind him. His power was, was there. And they saw the power of God at work right before their eyes. So uh, let's, let's, let's just go through this just a little bit more. As Peter was emboldened, we're going to read this in 51 through 54 of Matthew's narrative. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword away in its place for all the take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot pray now, pray now to my father and he will provide me with over 12 legions of angels. Now then, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? If the angels came, the scriptures couldn't be fulfilled. This has to happen. This has to happen. Peter saw, now listen to this, Peter saw what Jesus did in his power, in his God power. Soldiers felt like pickup sticks, and now he thinks it's their time. This is the kingdom. Oh, finally, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. This is when it's going to be established. Now, I have this couple pictures here, one of pickup sticks. You played this game when you were a kid, and this, this is what the soldiers look like. They're all grouped around Jesus. They're not all kind of distant away. They're grouped around Jesus, think there's going to be some kind of fight or rebellion, and they all fall in this group. It's a group fall on the ground. Now, you remember what happened on May 18th, 1980. You might remember Mount St. Helens exploded. And we know that this is like pickup sticks. These trees are all down. I can just see these soldiers, all different kinds of crisscrosses and just falling right to the ground as the power of God has been displayed in that situation. An amazing thing. He went forward and he said, I am. And they drew back and fell. Now again, who is really in charge? Indelibly imprint this in our minds. Jesus is in charge. God is in charge. As this world looks in chaos, it looks absolutely out of control. The Mideast is exploding. The Ukraine is exploding. Our economy is slowing down. Things are getting more expensive. Everything is just one big giant mess. Well, it's going to be that way until Jesus comes back. These guys came with bad motives. Jesus then commands them. Watch this. Let these go their way. It says in John, let these go their way. This is a command to release his friends. This is not a suggestion. He has exhibited his power. This is a command given to that thousands of men, and he's going to release those people. What Peter saw when Peter heard this command, Peter leaps into action, and again, he thinks it's time, and he's macho man. Remember macho man Peter? And he comes and he tries to split this guy's head wide open. He misses, and off goes the ear. Now Luke adds that Jesus picks up the ear. Now, when you get a head wound, the head is really vascular, bleeds like mad. I mean, a little scratch and it bleeds like mad. This guy's ear is gone, okay? This whole thing is, he just doesn't take a surgical thing. He's got like half his skull just peeled right off. 
This is a mass of gushing of blood. And onto the ground, this bloody ear lands in the dirt. And then Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on Malchus, heals it perfectly. No more wound. Can you imagine? They, these guys experienced two miracles. The thousand guys falling like pickup sticks. And Malchus' ear, boom, put right back on his head. Perfect. Perfect. That is who is in charge. That is God. That is the one that is involved in your life. That is the one. He is the one that is there with you. Let these go their way. Cuts off his ear. Jesus commands Peter to put the sword away. If you live by the sword, you'll perish by the sword. And this is the whole thing with Jesus. The kingdom is not yet Peter. It will come. The Peter, it is not yet. First, Jesus has to die for the sins of the world. Jesus tells Peter, I could have called 12 legions of angels, but I would not do this because that was not part of the plan. I have to go through this. Folks, we're going to have, a, you have a plan. There'll be something you have to go through. Something that God has given you that only you are going to experience. It's all unique to each one of us. I want you to think about this. 12 legions of angels. One angel killed 185,000 Syrians in one night in 2 Kings 19.35. You know what this tells me? You don't mess with angels. You don't mess with angels. And how often do people, and remember the fallen angels are the demonic realm. And how often do we make slanderous accusations and use words carelessly regarding Satan or the demonic realm? Certainly they are the enemy. That's the truth. But some people get carried away with the way they address this. We are told not to disrespect, disrespect even the de demonic realm. Jude verse 9 says this, but even the archangel Michael, now he's the chief angel who watches over the nation of Israel. You see this in Daniel. Very specifically, all power to watch over the nation of Israel. When he disputed with the devil over the body of Moses, did not presume to bring a slanderous charge against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Your power is in Christ in you. The hope of glory. Realize this. Realize you must, must, must realize who you are in Christ. You are a formidable warrior with the armor of God that is expressed in Ephesians 6. Put on the armor of God. You have your armor on every day. You don't take it off. You have all authority of heaven, of Christ, to stand to resist the wiles of the devil. You can command the demonic to leave your presence. How you speak the word. Remember, the sword of the spirit is your offensive weapon. Your offensive weapon. It's the word of God. How do you use this sword? Look, at the demons can't read your mind. Only God knows what you're thinking. The demonic don't. They pretend they do. They, 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 they watch your actions and they, and they guess what you're going to do in the future and that sort of thing. That's how, how channelers work and that sort of thing. People that try to get hold of the dead and get new information. It's all demonic. It's all demonic. They don't know. They're extrapolating from past actions what's going to happen. They don't have a clue. So you speak the word out loud. And believe me, the demonic hate the word of God. That's the sword of the spirit. That's why it's important to inculcate by repetition, put the God's word in your mind so you are a formidable adversary of the devil. 
Then put into action James 4, verse 7 and 8. Therefore, submit yourself to God. That word submit is hupotasso. Place yourself under God. You are my supreme. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then think about this. It just struck me. Don't you get it, Peter? I have come for this very hour. Folks, we are many times like Peter. We act before we think. Now, I don't know if you're a type A, type B, but I'm like a type of A++++. Now, I've gotten old. I'm just an A- minus now, but it's a little bit better. But it was A++++. I mean, you have the t- old typewriter that you just hold the thing down and we just <clears throat> go right across the page with it. Yeah, yeah. So act before, Peter wanted to act before he thought. Sometimes folks were emboldened to fight, to move before the appointed time. Sometimes we take things into our own hands when we shouldn't. Sometimes I've just had enough and I come out swinging when I shouldn't. At times, I li- at times like this, folks, when you are starting to feel that pressure to act out, you take a hard stop. And remember, God is in this. God is with me. God will fight for me. God is the centrality of my life. I represent him, not myself. This is not about me. Remember Moses. He's trapped at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army's coming. The people turn on Moses. And they start saying, you got us to this position. You got, you, I, we told you we didn't want to be involved with this Exodus stuff. We want the leeks and the onions of, of Egypt. And Moses looks at him right between the peepers. And in Exodus 14, 14, he says to them, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Be still, folks. There's a time for action, but I'm telling you, most of the time, be still and allow God to fight for you. I'm not saying we should never fight, but there's a time and a place for everything. But don't jump in the flesh. Folks, that's our flesh. It wants to jump. It wants the action. It wants its way. James chapter 1, 19 through 20 says this, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. In 55 and 56a, Jesus is going to talk to this multitude that has come to take him by force. The ones that have already fallen down. He's going to ask them a question. Verse 55. And in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Question, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? And then he tells them, You had plenty of opportunity to take me. I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. This is important. He says, I sat daily with you in the temple. This should have hit them right between the eyes. You could have seized me then, but you didn't. But you didn't. Why didn't they seize him then? You you know the answer. Most people know the answer in here. They did not seize him because they could not seize him. It was not his time. Now, who's orchestrating all of this again? God. God is orchestrating this. These guys were pawns in a master plan to redeem the humanity. 
Jesus tells them, plain and simple, this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, exactly like prophesied hundreds of years ago, fulfilled. Jesus is in full control, even in the dark hour, even in your dark hour, when you cannot feel God, when you cannot sense God, he is still in this with you. He'll take you through the fire. He will take you through the waters. He will never leave you nor forsake you. In that dark hour when you feel alone, you must realize and you must process this. God is with me. Just say it right to yourself. God is with me. I don't understand this. This is painful, but I believe he is with me. He is with me. That'll do great. That'll be a great benefit to your soul. Listen to this. Puny man coming in the garden with a thousand men to, to capture Jesus, taking God by force. This is what I call the epitome of ridiculous. Ridiculous. They think that they can come and take Jesus. Now the disciples are going to desert. desert and I'm wondering, why in the world would they desert? They saw the power of Christ. They saw his life. Why are they deserting at this point? Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And I got to thinking, what, at what point, what was the impetus for this desertion? I mean, he healed the ear. He saw the thousand fall like tinker toys, like pickup sticks. It's, I think it's this. When Jesus let them bind him, bind him, take him captive, because they were next to be taken captive if he had not released them. I think that's when they fled. All of them, all the disciples, including John, stumbled and ran to safety. I want to ask you a question. How would you feel an hour later abandoning Jesus? How would you feel an hour later? Now, they might have talked in the group trying to assuage their concerns. I'm just thinking about a conversation that might have happened. They might have said, well, we, we served him for three and a half years. We followed him, and it's ending so terribly. We wasted our time. I could have been fishing. I, I had three and a half years of lost income because I've been following a guy that's going to die, and he didn't carry, the kingdom didn't come, and I'm all disturbed. They could have thought that. They were disappointed and disillusioned. Jesus was not shy about telling them what was going to happen. Do you know that multiple times Jesus told them about his death and resurrection? Multiple times, multiple times that he would be raised from the dead. Luke 19.22 says this. I'm just going to give you just a few. The son of, and he's talking to his disciples. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Just in case you don't get it, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, John 2, 12. And then in Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. It's the plan. It's the plan. And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day, Matthew 16, 21. The disciples just didn't get it. And folks, many times in our lives we don't get it. When we feel abandoned by God, God is still with us. He's still in the situation. Fear. They didn't get it. Fear was their motivator. They're, they were at the moment of fear and intimidation with the chief priest. It was just too much for them in the natural, and they fled. 
Now, I have a statement here that I think every one of us should remember. Don't let fear affect your faith. Don't let fear affect your faith. You know, fear was not part of the creation. Fear came in with sin in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve feared God, that was not part of it. We feel fear all the time. That's because of the sin curse that happened in this world. They let Jesus' words about suffering and dying blow right past them. Suffering and dying, folks, was not part of the disciples' plan. They wanted the kingdom now. And they could not fathom that Jesus would be taken captive by a little army of people. Folks, it's not about our plans, but his plan. Remember that for your life. It's not about our plans, but his plan. Now, I have some closing thoughts here. I'm going to read you something that one guy wrote. He wrote this. Once upon a time when there was no time, God made a plan. Everyone loves a good story. God is the greatest storyteller of them all. Countless years ago, he began a drama that dwarfs all dramas in terms of plot, character, and setting by an infinite order of magnitude. The stage and scope of God's drama occupies the entire physical universe and all that is beyond, hidden from us. God is the perfect writer who has written a drama with heroes and villains, life and death, triumph and tragedy. In this drama, God has given his creatures the freedom to choose. Please remember that, the freedom to choose. But as the writer of the novel knows the choices his characters will make, God knows the choices we will make. He chose in his wisdom to create as he created. His goal is to bring glory and honor to himself so that in his creation might rejoice in that glory for we are heirs of that glory. But that we are joint heirs with Christ. We will get everything that Jesus has. That's an amazing thing. In his wisdom, God determined a fallen and redeemed world would be more glorious than a world which never fell. We who have trusted him will receive his accolade as actors receive applause at the end of the play. What might that accolade be? Well, we learned in the parable of the talents when Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. The disciples could not fathom the plan. Most can't. Most can't. Dying and resurrecting was the greatest plan of the ages. It was the only way to redeem us. God knew the disciples would betray and desert him. Prophecy fulfillment was the plan. Look, it's good to plan. It is. We should make plans and that for the future. But be careful to adjust your plans as you go through life. We make all kinds of plans, not having a clue if they'll ever be carried out. Now, you've gone to many high school graduates, and you see the kids parading across the platform. They get their diploma, and what do they say they're going to be? Oh, I'm going to be a world changer. Or you get some athlete, I'm going to be in the NBA. I'm going to be a, a UFC fighter. I'm going to be a champion. I'm going to be something great and wonderful and terrific. No one ever says, as they've crossed that platform, and I'm not saying this is awful or terrible, but they never say, I'm going to be a McDonald's worker. 
I'm going to be a Walmart associate. That's the greatest thing I ever want to be. I, I, just a Walmart associate. Or I'm going to cut grass for a living. Nothing wrong with any of those things. Nothing wrong with any of those things. I'm not demeaning that. But the way the world looks at those things, wherever God places you is where you're going to be the greatest for his glory. I don't care if it's Walmarts. I don't care if it's McDonald's. I don't care if it's on the lawnmower and grass cutting. You'll be your greatest for his glory. But people don't aspire to that. But you know, life happens. No one I ever heard aspired to be a drug addict. I'm walking right across here. Man, I love getting high. I love, get, I love drinking. I, I, I'm going to be a drug addict, an alcoholic. I'm going to be an abuser. No one ever says, I, I like to be homeless. I'm, I want to be totally free. Do whatever I want. Nobody ever says that. But life happens in most cases it's because of sin. Not all cases. Most cases it's because of sin. But I want to tell you, in the most dreary of situations, there is always hope in Christ. In the most dreary of things, in Christ there is hope. At some level, we all enter in betrayal and desertion. How so? How so? Every time we sin, it is a betrayal of our Lord. Every time we sin, we desert God for that moment. Every time you sin, you do something volitional. You take God and you place him on the shelf. You get him out of your thoughts, out of your way, and then you engage in whatever your sin is. God can't be there in the middle of that. Can't be there. You set him off to the side. God knew the risk of having a higher creation, giving the higher creation the freedom to choose or reject him. This was part of the plan. God knew that humanity would betray him and desert him. But remember, nothing catches God by surprise. Scripture says that Jesus himself is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and he is the end. Time is for us. Jesus, God, is outside of time. He's every bit in the beginning as he is at the end, as he is with the present. That is the omniscient, omnipotence, omnipresent God, always existing in every level of time, never in one place more than another. He exists in the whole time frame. He knows the beginning from the end. That is an important concept. There is not one datum of information that he does not have. He knows everything. Not one dot, one not dripple of any information. He knows everything that is happening. Freedom came with the risk. God wanted people to love him and choose him volitionally. God is free. Now hear this. God is free. He made us in the image of God to be free. That is an important concept. He made us to be free. God would pursue man. He would draw us. He would convict us. He would open blinded eyes. He would soften hearts. He would give us many opportunities to know him. All God. All God. He would even die for man to take away their deception and betrayal and desertion. God did everything to secure our salvation. And all he asked of us is to receive the gift of salvation. That's all he asks. The plan is for you to come to believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the greatest plan. You were, you were born for that purpose. And you were born for that purpose. And then be prepared for the kingdom that is coming. To submit yourself to him in preparation for what is coming. Paul expresses our greatest plan is to know Christ in Philippians 3, 10 through 11. 
Watch what he says. I want to know Christ. Gnosis. Know him intimately. Not just some superficial, yay Jesus type of thing, but really have a relationship with the living God and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want to know Christ. Folks, that's part of the plan. It's good to plan, but remember, you must be ready to adjust your plans to God's plans for you. I don't know how many people go to college and say, well, I'm going to do this, and they, the plan changes. Be ready to flex, folks. Be ready to flex. Hold gently to your plans and be prepared for a plan change. Proverbs 69 says it perfectly. In his heart, a man plans his course. I got my whole life planned out. Oh, really? Really? You're 18. You don't have a clue what's going to happen down the road. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord establishes his steps. Allow God to direct your steps and to fulfill his plan for your life. Wherever he places you, you're greatest for his glory. The greatest plan is to know him. Then following it, the greatest plan is to serve him. And by the way, in his final plan is the greatest plan is to enjoy him. What is not part of the plan is everyone's doing it. So I'm going to jump on board that train. That is not part of the plan. God made a plan, folks. God made a plan. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the plan. Believe in the son and be saved. Now we're going to be doing the communion service here. And then we're going to, remembering what Christ has done is part of the plan. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask that you'd speak to each heart here. Lord, something to chew on, something to think about, something to believe that maybe we didn't believe in the past. I pray that anybody that hears this, they don't know Jesus Christ as their savior, that they would stop, take a hard stop, and realize that they're hopelessly lost, destined for hell. They put their faith, believe in Jesus as their Savior, and receive the gift of salvation. Lord, I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen.